Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. Here at the Centre, we are dedicated to eradicating mental health inequalities by changing policy and practice. So recently, my colleague Kadra Abdanasa and I caught up with Myra Khan. Myra Khan is a counsellor, but she's also the founder of the Muslim Counsellor and Psychotherapist Network. And it was a truly fascinating conversation. We talked about the mental health challenges facing racialized communities, particularly Muslim communities. We discussed the impact that being minoritized can have on people's mental health, as well as the multifaceted impact of stigma. Myra shared her insights on the need for culturally informed approaches and a more representative workforce, as well as the language barriers which can stop people getting the help that they need. So I am delighted to be here today uh, with Myra Khan. She is a counsellor, supervisor, counselling tutor and the founder of the Muslim Counsellor and Psychotherapist Network. And we are so excited to have her here today. And I'm also here with Kadra Abdanasa, who is our Head of Children and Young People's Mental Health here at the Centre. Um, so we're just really excited to have this conversation. So hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Um, so Myra and I caught up a few weeks ago um, and shared each other's sort of work in the, the mental health space, thinking about working with um, marginalised and racialised communities specifically. Um, but I reached out to Myra following a clubhouse room. I joined about w- Muslim women's mental health. I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, lots of questions came up and, you know, themes around un- being unable to access support, where to go for help. And, you know, just it just struck me how so many women were suffering in silence. Um, and I was like, oh, do they know about Mira's, you know, network? What a great resource to kind of point them to. And I thought it would be really great to, you know, have a conversation with Mira about some of the work she does in the space. Um, so I guess just to sort of like kick off um, with the first sort of question we had, what sort of um, mental health challenges do you see in your work, um, you know, facing racialized communities um, and, you know, any sort of like insights that you have around intersecting experiences of Muslims and, you know, Muslim communities and Muslim women as well? I think it's really important to recognise that for any client who comes from any kind of minoritized or racialized community, that whilst they will be struggling with what I what I can call kind of the regular and potentially kind of common mental health issues or struggles, what kind of impacts on that even more is then their experience of being racialized and minoritized and then all the isms that they then have to experience, all the barriers and hurdles and struggles because of that, um, being racialized that they then have to have to kind of struggle and go through so that compounds then their mental health struggles so it's about recognizing that those two things are kind of happening and that the two are also kind of interrelating with each other as well yeah that's really helpful thank you and I think the the sort of added domain of religious discrimination especially you know since 9-11 has impacted like Muslim communities and actually demonize them and criminalize them in so many ways it's like another sort of factor that I see you know just you know within my own community and why people feel sometimes they can't come forward because you know there's other sort of negative stereotypes you know surrounding some of that so yeah just touching a little bit more then on stigma and what role that plays how can we challenge some of the misconceptions surrounding stigma um, within racialized and Muslim communities I think there's something around Stigma works both ways. 
it's 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 kind of a two-way kind of relationship and connection i think there is stigma both within the community and then there is stigma attached to the community and it's so it's two it's, stigma appears in those two ways and so it's to recognize that within muslim communities there is stigma around mental health counseling therapy going and getting professional support because of community potential values community dynamics social dynamics and constraints that occur within very often predominantly um, collectivist communities and so there is stigma there to then go outside of the family go outside of the community to go and get the help so stigma exists within the community when you then add to that the stigma that then is attached to projected onto the community that then creates even further barriers and hurdles to also going outside of their community to go and get help and even then if somebody an individual within that community wants to do that they then face those external stigmas and barriers and and then of course all the worries and fears of being judged being further racialized being further um discriminated against by going and then getting that help so there's barriers on all these different layers as i said kind of first of all let me get over first of all the hurdles and barriers within my community and then even after i've got jumped over all of those gosh then there are all these hurdles external to my community and hurdles potentially within the mental health system as well mm. so it's hard work by the time someone actually ends up in counseling gosh how much kind of emotional gymnastics they've had to do then to actually get there and access the help has taken a huge amount of, of resilience actually. Can I just ask in your um, practice have you seen any progress being made to kind of I, I really like the distinction you made there around within the community and attached to the community have you seen any sort of overall progress being made over the last couple of years around this or you know is progress being made in one of those more than the other as well? I definitely think progress is being made and I think it's being made actually twofold yes to do with both of those stigmas so first of all what I'm definitely seeing is an increase in many more Muslim and um, minoritized ethnic minoritized people from our communities actually going and becoming professional counsellors and therapists so there is something around partly to um break down the stigma within communities well if we have people from that very same communities then working professionally great that's helping that's definitely helping more people from within the community to act to access um counseling simultaneous and parallel to that then we are also working incredibly hard then to create a mental health system and actually um counseling and therapy itself that is um what I would call kind of culturally sensitive, faith sensitive, um, that has cultural humility within it. So again, that twofold approach, let's get more people from those communities in the profession, and then let's make the profession itself much more available, accessible and applicable and sensitive to the needs of people from those very same, from those very same communities. So yeah, th th those kind of two things are working in parallel. And over the years, I have seen that starting to make some real inroads um, 
and first and foremost, where that's where that's definitely reflected is then just the sheer amount of people then that are coming from those communities and accessing counselling. I've definitely seen an increase in referrals. I've seen um, huge numbers of people come via the Muslim Council and Psychotherapist Network to access counsellors via the directory that we have on there. So we've specifically set, a, set up a counselling directory that is exclusively of Muslim practitioners. And so again, just getting rid of some of those in, initial barriers and hurdles within our communities so clients can immediately access somebody who is not only professionally trained and registered, but also can offer them both cultural and faith sensitivity in the work as well. I think there is something around we need services that are faith and culturally sensitive as an embedded part of what they offer to all clients, as well as services that are specifically aimed at particular communities. And the reason I say we need both is because it is not that one is better than the other, but rather they're meeting different needs at the end goal in, in, in one way or another. I think there is something around, if we call these kind of the more generic services in which any client can then come and access, and it's not based on identity, actually being culturally and faith sensitive is actually about working, what I call working within diversity. So for me, a big part of the work and the push that I have at the moment in the work that I do is to really push for all counselling services, processes, training to have working within diversity embedded as a core part of, of, of the work so that services then can work with all clients. Because it's an aspect of identity, it's an aspect of really seeing the client in front of you. And I think whilst that gets covered potentially marginally in training courses, I see it as a far, far larger factor of working with any client so on the one hand, I really want all services to be culturally and faith sensitive as an embedded core part of how we work as counsellors, part of our ethical framework, part of our counselling competencies and counselling framework or counselling process. But because the profession is vastly underrepresentative of all the different diverse communities they then serve, this is why we also need that second type of counselling service, which is then services that meet the needs and as well as the representation of particular communities. Especially because I think what is so important for some, I think for all communities, but I think particularly for racialized and minoritized communities, I think it's really important that they feel that they are going to a service and seeing a professional counsellor or therapist who then represents them or an aspect of their identity or an aspect of their community. Because essentially what clients are then asking for is, I want to be seen for me, for the individual that I am. And so by sitting opposite and being in therapeutic relationship then with a counsellor who can understand that, and is visibly representative of that. Again, there is something then about a client being fully seen for who they are. So helpful to think about that. Um, and you were saying so much there, but kind of it felt like you were partly saying, and it's, it's partly that 
this is so cool to who we are, isn't it? As as people, that faith is often so a, a huge part of who we are. And you need people who can actually just understand that. And so um, even whether it's in faith specific or in more generic kind of NHS services, we need um, therapists and therapeutic relationships that actually can speak to that really core part of our of our identity. But then also, as you're saying, like huge underrepresentation um, both within the profession, but also, you know, as we were looking at, we did our Commission for Equality final report back in November and looking at how some communities, including some racialized communities, can really struggle to access the right help when they need it um, in a way that's actually helpful and effective. Um, and so I think you've really spoken to that kind of need for specialist services that actually, as you say, people who look like them, who can really relate on that level. I think that's it's so critical, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, just, and just as you were talking there, what I was reflecting on was not only is it important that the therapeutic process itself is culturally and faith sensitive. So that's something around the service and the setup and how the counselling is being offered. So it, in a way, is that that sensitivity then is contained within the service. But also we need that sensitivity to be contained within the practitioner as well. And so it's it, it's, it's kind of, it has a dual role then in it being part of the process and the work, but also there and proactive and part of the process within the practitioner as well and so that's why yes we need services to be faith and culturally sensitive but not external to the practitioner it needs to be within the culture of the service but it also needs to be in within the practitioner as well and the two then need to be complementary and so I think that's why it's really important that yes services are faith and culturally sensitive but that the, the, the service can only do that if the practitioners are as well yeah, exactly. And I think like we see um, the value of that complementary approach now in light of the pandemic. So thinking about like actually how faith groups and, you know, community groups led by racialized people are just a huge asset in terms of like helping people overcome bereavement and grief associated with COVID. Um, you know, there was a big report out that came out over the summer um, by an organization called Mainstream, which just really highlighted the huge demand in um, culturally specific bereavement support and just really recognizing you know Muslims, Christians, Jewish communities, every you know faith group have been unable to sort of practice their you know usual rituals and routines for, for, for funerals and you know hopefully that's something that sort of partnership approach as well as having the universal NHS mainstream services and the you know sort of targeted culturally specific support that the two have come together quite successfully in many areas and hopefully that's something we can learn from and you know have statutory services really empowering faith leaders and community leaders to to do more of this work and fun fundamentally as well funding them properly <laughs> that's been one of the biggest sort of barriers from you know for, for community-led organizations in this space yeah Absolutely. And, and speaking to that kind of collaboration that's needed as well, there is something around things can so easily kind of be, be pushed back into the community and say, well, that's what your community needs. So, yes, where are your community leaders and we'll get them to do it? Or whether it's kind of 
the, the head of services or, or the head of a mosque, for example, or head of a community centre or, or of, of a community. And I think it's really easy for it to be kind of be pushed back into the community. But I think in doing so, I think there's a real danger in that because what ends up happening is the process of us being minoritised then gets embedded in how we're being related to and how we then can look after ourselves. And so there is a real danger then in communities going, okay, we have these needs. Okay, and we'll get on and do it ourselves, which I think there is some call for that, but, but also it needs to be done in collaboration with mainstream services. It needs to be done in collaboration with um, larger or mainstream organisations so that communities then in accessing help don't end up having to kind of almost turn inwardly for that support but then it's not there because it's the very same people then that are struggling so I think these collaborations and these kind of coalitions that are coming out and we've seen emerge through, through the lockdown and certainly over this past year um, we've certainly seen the emergence then of um, communities or coalitions and collaborations actually addressing these points whether it's through um, bereavement counselling or whether it's through webinars and seminars to support mental health and well-being and self-care and it's certainly something that the Muslim communities have come together to do and a number of Muslim mental health organisations then for the past year then have been offering um, we've, we've been coming together every month to offer a monthly live webinar and every month it's been a different topic or issue and it's ranged from what would have been at the very beginning of lockdown of course then how to support your mental health during lockdown all the way through to exactly what you're talking about, Kevra, which is how can we support family members or other people then within our community that, that are grieving and, and are, you know, have been struck with bereavements all the way through to how to cope with homeschooling, how to cope with family who you've not seen. It's, it's, it's been such a wide ranging um, series of, of webinars every month because, of course, in the past year, it hasn't just been around the direct impact of COVID, such as i.e. bereavement. That's an obvious theme and clearly something we're seeing a lot of then in, in terms of the referrals we're getting through, high increase in people wanting to come for bereavement counselling. But it's the domino effect. It's the isolation, the loneliness, the I, I've not seen the rest of my extended family in a year and or, or homeschooling or, or kids or kids being at home. And so the ramifications, the repercussions just of lockdown in and of itself, um, we need that support in place for our communities. Otherwise, it's just not there. But again, it needs to come from, I think it needs to come from, though, within the community to think about, well, what are the needs, first of all? But then those needs need to be met, inclusive of mainstream services. Otherwise, it just becomes a vicious cycle and it ends up being communities then that become isolated and burnt out because they're looking to people within their own community to support them. And whilst I absolutely love my job, um, if it was left up to the Muslim counsellor within your community doing all of that, gosh, it's not going to be very sustainable, is it? And so it needs this collaboration and in these coalitions to come together and put out information, do webinars and seminars, um, hosting live meetups, um, my network, certainly, the, the Muslim Council and Psychotherapist Network, since um, last March, the moment lockdown came in, up until July, we held weekly meetups, online Zoom meetings, and they were open house. 
for any Muslim mental health practitioner, because we recognise that, you know, there, there would be severe burnout otherwise within the profession because of the real demand for our time and energy. Um, so, yeah, we're having to think about all of those different things rather than just directly thinking about the client. It's also about the sustainability of the professionals from our communities as well. Wow, such phenomenal work. I'm in awe of all the things that you do. And, I, you know, it's just fantastic to hear about the webinars and just how hugely important they are. I've seen just, you know, um, my local mosques here in London doing quite a, a lot of like fantastic work around the promotion of like the COVID vaccines and, you know, bringing translators in to like communicate that and just a huge difference that's having in terms of you know, building confidence um, and, and also involving local decision makers. They should be coming to where communities are and not expecting communities to come to these, you know, virtual town halls or <laughs> groups that they create in spaces that are predominantly white or of people who have and hold a lot of power. I think there's a lot more work, um, you know, to be honest with you, that they can be doing around that and communication with, you know, tapping into to networks like yourselves um, in the space. Um, and definitely we did some work, um, I think it was around May last year, looking at both the direct and indirect, you know, consequences of COVID. And again, you know, of course we know about the disproportionate impact the virus itself is having on, you know, racialized and minoritized communities. But, you know, as you say, just all those huge indirect consequences around, you know, education, unemployment, um, these are huge issues that, you know, moving forward, you know, we just have to have like a new vision for what the system looks like and how it's centered around really disrupting and ending those cycles of inequality and disadvantage. Um, I just want to come back to one point, Kadri, you made, which I think is really important. And that's around um, language. And we spoke earlier about the need for generic mainstream services, but also faith and culturally sensitive services. And one of the big reasons why those faith and culturally sensitive services are needed is because it offers counselling then in additional languages and immediately then removes those, those language barriers for clients. I'm just thinking that on um, the directory, we have such a wide range of counsellors who offer counselling in various additional languages. And just off the top of my head, um, I'm thinking Arabic, French, Polish, um, a range of all the different Asian languages, Urdu, Punjabi, um, Hindi, Gujarati, Bengali, and then through to um, Middle Eastern languages of Arabic, but also um, Yoruba. We've got other African languages. And so, and so again, I'm sat here going, how will you ever be able to find that range of counsellors in any mainstream service? You just wouldn't. And even if there are services out there that do offer counsellors who offer all those different languages it, it is often because the service itself then is, is again targeted at particular communities or they are a centre specifically set up for cultural diversity and and so I'm thinking again about the need from actually the calls from within our own um, communities that then um, say actually what do we need to reduce some of the barriers and the stigmas as you said earlier Kadra um language is, is, is one of them amongst lots of other factors, but language alone can certainly eliminate um, barriers for many clients and because they can then access a counsellor who speaks their mother tongue or their first language, immediately goes, yeah, I'm going to go to counselling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like 
um, you know, and if people aren't able to access a counsellor who shares, you know, the same background and language, you know, thinking about what more can be done to support interpreters within the health system overall, I just, you know, just my personal experience, I don't think they get enough training or support to do the work they do. And often they really lack, you know, the competencies and mental health literacy and sometimes put people in harm's way unintentionally. And that's, again, just due to the lack of like processes around that being brought in to like sitting on somebody's session at the last minute. So there's also those challenges that I think we need to think a lot more around how we build up and, you know, diversify the workforce across, you know, the profession, including those who come in on an ad hoc basis um, mm. in that way. That's, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's so true. And just, yeah, what you were saying, Moira, about, I mean, it's such an obvious point, isn't it, about language, but just thinking for myself, I can't imagine having to talk about the most intimate and personal details of my life in a language that is not my mother tongue like how hard and how challenging that could be and yeah and and you know even just in my language of Somali I think I only know of like five words that relate to mental health and they all pretty much mean, mean the same thing but if you are very skilled in the language you would know and pick up on like other ways people might describe their symptoms mm. which you know isn't like a dictionary definition of anxiety or or something along those lines it's, it's a real skill isn't it um yeah and, and i'm also thinking of just of the, the nuance in language as well that for, for clients then who are working in a second language or possibly even a third language because of the counselor they're working with and there is no interpreter available that they're having to kind of really grasp with a very limited vocabulary and in doing so then they aren't able to articulate what they're really feeling and what their real experiences are. So it almost in a way it goes back to this idea of not being seen again and not being fully heard. And, and so th there is something around, it then lacks the kind of cultural sensitivity if you're then working with a client who's having to use a second or third language in the room um, because you're missing a huge percentage of what they would otherwise be able to talk about. And that's literally because they don't have the words. And of course, there's like nonverbal communication as well. Um, I just wondered if you had like any insights or experiences around how, you know, people might use, you know, other forms of therapy, like art therapy, for example. You know, is that something that's been effective as well with some groups? Yes. I, yes, there's a whole range now of, of different types of um, therapies that take into consideration, not just kind of talking therapy. So, yes, art therapy play therapy, drama therapy, all sorts of animal assisted therapy, um, all sorts. So it, it can take away from the need to kind of rely purely on verbal language. But again, the huge disadvantage then is the availability and accessibility then of practitioners then who are culturally and face sensitive then to do that work as well. So it's a bit like saying, well, we have an alternative, but then the alternative itself then may not be suitable either. I think, again, it goes back to this idea of it's about kind of the perfect mix of both suitability of the counselling modality, the culture of the counselling service you access, and then thirdly, the therapist and their cultural and faith sensitivity. And it's almost like the perfect storm if you're able to get all three. Um, and what I find then is that out of those three, what gets in a way prioritised or what might be the first tick box 
that clients then will do in order to find a counsellor or counselling that they think will suit them is out of that choice of three, counselling modality, counselling service and counsellor, they will always look to who is the counsellor. They will use the counsellor as the filter through which, oh, is this somebody I want to go and get counselling with? No, the, the service and the modality tend to absolutely come second and third because the first thing clients will do is go, well, I want I want a counsellor who's culturally and faith sensitive. And, and that will be the reason why they will, they will come to me or, or to a colleague. So that's super interesting. And I think like there's also something about, you know, you know, the first counsellor you might meet or the first mental health practitioner you might come across might not be like your perfect sort of match as well. I wondered something around like people not giving up if they don't find the sort of right practitioner the first time round, because that can also be a sort of tricky relationship to establish, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I always talk about shopping around for your therapist. Um, You have to you have to find somebody who you feel is a good match for you. And not every counsellor is a good match for every client. Um, the, the, the metaphor, the visual that just came into my head then was the idea of you know, Cinderella and the, and the glass slipper. But, it's, but it is that idea of, you know, oh, it just fits nicely. And, and so I always recommend to clients that when they first embark on looking for a counsellor, is yeah, shop around. Go, go and book yourself in for assessments with a few different counsellors who you think might be suited based on their profiles and what's written on their websites. But don't feel that you have to stick with the first counsellor that you see. And actually, only by being able to go to a few at the beginning, are you actually, do you actually have something to compare to? If you only go to the first one and then, and then start counselling with that first counsellor, you've got nothing to gauge it against. You've, you've got no idea of, oh, is this counsellor as warm and friendly and as empathic as a counsellor could be? You don't know that until you've gone to a second or a third. And very often, often in these um, assessments, you go for an assessment first with a counsellor. And then after that, you can decide whether you want to actually book in for them and commit to weekly therapy with them. A lot of counsellors will offer that assessment um, either at a reduced fee or they'll offer a shorter assessment time for free. I know um, some of my colleagues will offer a like 15 minute free consultation on the phone. In that 15 minutes, we'll get a sense of each other and know whether you want them booking for an assessment or not. For others, it might be a um, you go in for a full assessment. Um, there might be a fee or it might be half price or free. But no, um, but you've always got to remember that when you book in for an assessment, there is absolutely zero obligation to then go and go and commit to that particular counsellor. Think of it in a, in a very strange way. Think of it as a first date. You've got no commitment for a second date. Um, so absolutely just kind of shop around and, and, and see what, what therapists are out there. There are thousands of therapists that, that exist out there. And just in the UK alone, there are there are thousands of us. So you won't be short of finding somebody. But I think it's yeah really important that you find somebody who you feel understands you, that gets you, that you feel safe with and you feel comfortable with. I think it's so important that you feel you are being emotionally held and contained by your client, that they are empathic and warm. And it's really important that you feel safe with them. Anything that feels off, anything that feels, that makes you feel uncomfortable, anything that feels that this is crossing boundaries or this just doesn't feel right, 
then if it's something that you feel able to talk to the counsellor about, then, then do that. But never feel obligated then to stay with a counsellor who then you feel that you're not getting, you know, a good service from. Just like ending a bad relationship. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We work with the endings in counselling all the time. So, it, and, and you're right, Kadra, it, it's, it is a relationship. It's a therapeutic relationship, but it's still a relationship. So there is a process to building up the trust over time. There is a process to um, feeling safe and comfortable to come every week and to share such intimate detail about your life with, with, with essentially a stranger. It takes a huge amount of courage, um, a huge amount of vulnerability to do that. So you absolutely want to make sure then that the person opposite you, the person that's listening to it and taking it all in and empathizing with it, and really what I call kind of being a witness to your story, that they are somebody that you want to do that journey with, that you want to go through that process uh, with them alongside you. That is such wise words, Mara, for anyone kind of trying to start that therapeutic journey and, and seek help for the first time. And I think that's so um, that's so true about shopping around and just kind of, it's it takes a lot of perseverance, though, doesn't it? I can speak from my own experience just to go through that process. But as you can say, it's definitely worth it. And we just wanted to know a little bit more about um, your network. So the Muslim Counselor and Psychotherapist Network. So kind of just, um, yeah, I guess your journey to setting it up and and maybe kind of were there, were there gaps that you were seeing that um, you wanted to address through it? And, and yeah, just tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I set it up back in 2013. Um, so it feels like a long time ago because a lot's happened to the network and to my, my practice and profession um, since then but interestingly I set it up because of the gap I set it up because when I trained I did not come across a single other Muslim practitioner when I was um, during my training I didn't see a single other Muslim practitioner um, in in the institution that I was teaching um, um, being, being taught at or nor amongst the teaching staff or on the placement that I was in um, and, and and so I kind of left and qualified and went surely there are more um this is going to sound really really aged but kind of at the time obviously little little britain was um very popular back then and, and i remember thinking i can't be the only one in the village if anyone gets that reference and so i remember thinking um i can't be the only muslim practitioner in this profession and so i what started off and it's actually still going to this day i set it up as a linkedin group and literally set it up one day and went, Muslim, yeah, what can I call it? Muslim Council and Psychotherapist Network. Because I wanted to network and meet other Muslim practitioners. I wanted to not feel that I was the only one. I didn't want to feel a lot of the things that I think we've been talking about today in terms of visibility and representation and feeling um, isolated and, and alone. And I thought, gosh, if I'm feeling all of these things, um, somebody newly qualified about to about to kind of start off in this career and in this profession I don't I don't want to do it where I'm going to feel like the odd one out I don't want to do it where I feel like I'm always going to be on the periphery of this profession and, and feel and actually have that um, experience of actually being marginalized and minoritized within the profession we have it enough being racialized and stereotyped and and I thought gosh I can't have that as well um, in the profession and so, yeah, what sort of as a LinkedIn group very quickly grew into, you know, um, seven, gosh, eight years on now, um, a network 
that is both um, aiming to meet the needs of Muslim practitioners. So we have our website, we have a counselling directory and newly launched um, this month supervision directory because again getting lots of um, um, emails in and I was getting a lot of individual phone calls as well of people asking for um, again faith and culturally sensitive supervision so there's that parallel process going on as well so we we kind of created then um, platforms for Muslim practitioners to be able to network and meet so every month we have a monthly online meetup for all our members um, we have a, a monthly online peer supervision meeting. We have um, we have the monthly webinar that we offer publicly. So that's one of one of the outputs of the network as well. And we also have quarterly forums. So we have a forum for trainees and students. We have a quarterly forum for um, those in our network, the members who might be tutors, trainers, or teachers that are teaching counselling as well or psychotherapy. And then thirdly, um, we have another quarterly meeting and that's our book club. So we have all of these different spaces for councillors and members to, to come and kind of meet one another. We also have our WhatsApp group. Um, so, so kind of all of these different spaces and platforms for not only practitioners to meet one another, but also to um, really kind of get in touch with that kind of professional development and best practice and support for their work as well. So whilst on the one hand, it's very social, it's also very kind of practitioner focused as well. I want people in our community to really kind of succeed within the profession and not feel alone. External to that kind of practitioner focus, the network then does lots of work in terms of our um, kind of public profiles. So we're across social media. We have, you know, the, 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 the regular, the common, you know, your Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But it's about putting out there all this information around Muslim mental health, around, around breaking down the stigmas that were spoken about earlier, so that then essentially by having the counselling directory, having the website, we are then directly connecting up clients from our communities with counsellors and equally then connecting up counsellors with supervisors. So essentially I'm kind of joining the dots. I'm the connector and the network is the connector between um, the practitioners and the clients within our communities. So that's kind of the second half of what the network does as well. Oh, super fascinating. I've, you know, as you know, I've been like signposting everybody I know to the network who's um, been asking for support. So I guess, you know, you're, you are just a, such a phenomenally influential leader in this space um, through the work you're doing with the network. But I also know you're working with other groups like the Diversity and Inclusion Coalition in counselling and psychotherapy look at you know how they can address this more widely across the profession but I guess I wanted to know a bit more from you around what you think needs to be done at a decision-making level either nationally or locally to create a more sort of racially and you know racially and inclusive mental health system and workforce if you had any key messages that you wanted to kind of promote to to the powers that be <laughs> well I, I suppose two, two key messages but they're closely linked one is a radical reform of the training that we give to practitioners in the sense that working inclusively, working within diversity, offering therapeutic um, th therapy and therapeutic services and processes that are faith and culturally sensitive, that needs to be addressed at training level. 
Because guess what? The trainees become qualified. The qualified then work in the services. And so it absolutely is a feedback loop. So the second part of that is, so first of all, it's about the training. And then second of all, it's then how does that then actually get implemented and embedded within services? And I'm not talking here about a tick box, a bolt-on. I'm talking about where it needs to be embedded as part of the core aspect of training in the same way it needs to be embedded as a core aspect of delivering a high-quality, kind of quality-assured, suitable, sustainable therapy and mental health service. And, and, that, and that's for NHS services, but also across private practices, ch- um, counselling charities or third sector counselling services as well. But if it gets addressed in, in training, then we need to also address how does it get embedded and implemented in the actual services as well. Thank you. That's really helpful. And it's, you know, also, I guess, encouraging to see that the sort of like recent anti-racist movement is gaining like a lot of momentum and you know it is kickstarting some of that thinking um in you know training of the workforce and um just overall systems reform and you know hopefully with covid and all of the changes that are due to come up with within the nhs that's something that we can embed embed you know organically through um these new systems that will be emerging one would hope (laughs) yeah yeah it's it On the one hand, it's a real sadness that it took the murder of George Floyd, that it took the BLM protests, that it took COVID for all of a sudden people to sit up and go, oh, we actually do need to make fundamental changes here. But I really do hope then that what comes out of tragedy is then a real positive change those very same communities that then have been affected by it. Moira, thank you so much. Like genuinely find that stuff fascinating on like multiple different levels. And I could have just listened to you all day. So um, thank you so much. You just speak with such like wisdom and clarity and I love it. I feel like it's been a counselling session. Yeah, I just feel really (laughs) like encouraged and um, yeah, just I'm so grateful that for what you're doing. No, no, well, thank you for kind of inviting me on and... uh, I, I always really appreciate being given kind of these platforms because, you know, again, I'm just thinking back and reflecting that, gosh, what started off as me being kind of so on my own in my training and then when I qualified and and then, like, you know, the fact that I'm part of that that kind of diversity and inclusion kind of coalition, I'm just thinking, and, 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 and like, I totally spearheaded Kadra to chair that and I'm on the panel, so I was like totally like, yeah, we'll get Kadra to chair it. I'd be like, everybody else, shut up. I just want to go <laughs> <laughs> just me everyone else's microphones but, no. um, <laughs> but, but there was just but, but for me it was like that moment where I'm like oh like the very first meeting we had like on zoom and I sat there and I have total imposter syndrome because I was like I'm sitting around a virtual zoom table here with all the professional bodies major professional bodies and training institutions and then me and my and what in my head is like it's my own little my my little network and actually I think there's just something around I'm always really humbled then by the fact then that the network is around a table such as that because it for me it's about it's grassroots stuff Mm. you know I'm sitting around or I'm sitting around the table where these organizations are multi-million pound organizations Mm. The, the, the people in the meetings then that you know the actual individual kind of people then 
are like one one people in a team of hundreds. And I'm sat there going, I'm a team of one. The network is solely run by me and I do everything. You know, so, so there is something around the reach it now has. It's like so much more than I ever could have imagined mm. when it's me just beavering away on, on my own and just getting on with it. And having spoken about this for years, you know, ever since I kind of qualified, delivering training, traveling the, the, the country, delivering training on working cross-culturally and pushing that message. And I'm just like, oh gosh, it took the last year then for actually people to hear it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We could have gone on talking with Myra all day. And uh, you can let us know what you think by getting in touch via our website. And we'd also love it if you'd consider donating to our work. You can do that by visiting www.centreformentalhealth.org.uk forward slash donate. See you next time.